0: Would you please take your copy of God's Word and be turning to Luke chapter 5 this morning. I want to thank Dustin Haddock for leading us last week, so ably handling the text. This morning we find ourselves in verse 17 of chapter 5. We'll be going through verse 26. Remember now as I read these words, these are the words of God Himself. And it happened that one day he, that is Jesus, was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And behold, some men were carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They were trying to bring him in and to set him down before him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, knowing their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up. And picking up your stretcher, go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been laying on, and went home, glorifying God. And astonishment seized them all, and they began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we are those who have at many times throughout this week and through the course of our lives been unfaithful, but we are coming this morning. Christ was born for us, he lived for us, he died for us, and he rose for us. And because of his resurrection, we have been justified. We thank you for that. But this morning, we need to continue growing in our sanctification. We need you to continue saving us And part of your means of doing that is through the preaching of the Word each week. And so we want to celebrate Christ today and see Him in the Scriptures and feast on Him in spirit and in truth. Would you enable us by your power to do that this morning? It's in the name of our Savior Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Well, before the calculated attritionary war on biblical patriarchy... Reached the boiling point around the 1960s, it was a common thing for young boys to get together and try and settle the inevitable debate. And that is, whose daddy could beat up who else's daddy? My daddy's so strong, he can carry four straw bales at one time. Well, my daddy was a Golden Glove champion three years running. Oh, yeah? Well, my daddy welded tanks during World War II. Well, my daddy helped build Norris Dam. And on and on it goes. Eventually, this prepubescent rooster fight would get to the point where one boy would say something really crazy, really outlandish. Oh, yeah? Well, my daddy could pick up the panzer your daddy welded and hit him over the head with it. And at this pronouncement, the eyes of all of the boys would get really narrow, and they'd probably turn their heads sideways a little bit, and the debate would conclude with everybody agreeing, nuh-uh, only God can do that. Well, we've, we've reached a similar point in the text of Luke this morning. He's been making the argument to Theophilus now for five chapters that Jesus Christ is a man like no other. His authority is greater than that of any king. His word contains more power than that of any prophet. His touch, more healing power than any priest. But here, in this morning's text, in chapter 5, Jesus does something that no prophet, priest, or king would ever have dared to do. He actually forgave a man's sins. And the Pharisees, arguing for the supremacy of their father, the devil, call out to our Lord and say, Nuh-uh, nobody can do that but God. And to their credit, they're right. Today, in the Gospel of Luke, he essentially lets the cat out of the bag. He gets to the message that he's been wanting to get to this whole time. Jesus is God. It's made explicit to us in the text this morning. He can forgive sins. He is building a kingdom that will never fail. And the question for us this morning, church, is will we, like the group of men at the beginning of this story, receive by faith all that the Bible says about this Son of Man. Or, like the Pharisees, will we ignore the things that the Bible says about Jesus that we don't like? And after years of unbelief, we lose our Messiah altogether. Today, in verses 17 through the first part of verse 20, we're going to see the persistence of true faith. And then in verses 20b through 21... Jesus is going to give a pronouncement, and that will be followed by a protest from the Pharisees. And then finally, in verses 22 through 26, we'll see the proof of Jesus' authority. For those of you who are note-takers, that's the persistence of true faith, then the pronouncement of Jesus and the protest of the Pharisees, and finally, the proof of Jesus' authority. Well, let's begin with that first section starting with verse 17. So far in in this chapter, Luke has given us a series of occasions. In chapter 5, verse 1, on one occasion, just a chance encounter during the life of the Lord Jesus, Luke chose to speak about that instance. And then in chapter 5, verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, and then in our text this morning in verse 17, on one of those days. Now, Dustin mentioned last week that These accounts show a growing fame in our Lord Jesus and His ministry and what He came to earth to do. And you see in verse 17 that His popularity is so great that even the religious elites have made pilgrimages up north from the regions of Judea even as far as the Jewish capital, Jerusalem. This is the first mention of the Pharisees in Luke, by the way. We're familiar with the name, but for those of you who might not have thought more deeply about this group, they're one of the four main religious movements in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, along with, you're familiar with, the Sadducees, and then the less known Essenes, and also the group known as the Zealots. The Pharisees are a non-priestly group. We hear them in the context of, other priestly figures, but they are a non-priestly group. They're a group of lay people, kind of a separatist party, if you will, whose goal was to turn back Judaism to faithful obedience to the law of Moses, or rather the elders' interpretation of the law of Moses. And the teachers of the law were a group of religious lawyers, a lot of them in that group of Pharisees, who supported extra-biblical tradition. Now, the fact that both of these groups made their way around the unclean realm of Samaria just to listen to Jesus teach tells us that at this point, his notoriety is unavoidable. It's not something that you can get away from. Notice that Luke says that the power of the Lord was present for him, that is Jesus, to perform healing in the second part of verse 17. Now someone's going to say, doesn't Jesus always have the power to heal? Why did he need the Lord's power? Who is the Lord of Jesus anyway? The Father not often spoken of in the Gospels as Lord, but Jesus being spoken of as the Lord. Here's another one of those verses that obliterates a non-Trinitarian view of the Godhead. The oneness heretics must have a very puzzling time with this verse. Jesus sent power to Jesus for Jesus to heal as he left the Department of Redundancy Department. Now, I've mentioned this briefly in the past, but in order for Jesus to identify with us as human creatures in every way, and even show us what the Christian life was meant to be lived like. He waited in every occasion for the Father to give him both direction and the means to accomplish his ministry. He wasn't acting as a rogue free agent from the Trinity, the power of healing was present with him in that moment. And you don't need to miss the irony that's here in verse 17. It's thick. Who is present and what is present? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law we see in verse 17 are present at the teaching of Jesus. And Luke also tells us that the power of the Lord for healing was present. Now next week we're going to see that this group that showed up to hear Jesus teach didn't need a physician. They didn't need someone with the power to heal both the body and the soul. But he's right there. He's right there in front of them. These men that needed him perhaps more than any other, he was so close and they missed him by a mile. Lost person, can I speak to you this morning? Every time a Christian, a brother or sister in Christ in the church, a covenant member perhaps at this church tells you, ...about your sin, they tell you that you've resisted God's authority, that you've not honored His righteousness revealed in the old covenant law, because your heart is hard and it keeps you from repenting. When you hear about the God-man, the Prince of Peace, who came to fight and destroy your sin and break its hold on humanity by the power of His sinless blood spilt in the place of the hopeless sinner... And that after he poured all of his blood out on the Roman cross, he rose for the full pardon of sins before the justice bar of God in heaven. When someone tells you that story, lost person, you are just that close to the physician and healer of your soul. In that moment, Jesus can use that gospel presentation... And the faith that he works in your heart to cause you to believe in him for forgiveness of sins. From Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, I warn you, lost one, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, contrast the Pharisees' close proximity to Jesus and their cold resistance to Jesus with the next group that Luke tells us about this persistent band of brothers. "...who will stop at nothing to get close to the healer, to this Jesus man who can heal their friend." The text says, "...and behold, some men were carrying on a stretcher, a man who was paralyzed," your translation might say, "...had the palsy, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down before him, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd." right in front of Jesus. I want you to imagine for a second a square-shaped house with a courtyard in the very middle of it. Now, the second story of this square-shaped house would have been used for facilitating guests when they came over, not as much rain in those arid desert areas, and so they could utilize that rooftop area. This style of home was typical in the Palestinian era back in those days. The text states that the entryway was blocked. So the friends of this man with paralysis took the stairs, which were located on the exterior of the building, and they went over to the courtyard where there would have been an interior tile covering, kind of like an awning for you to be able to go into your courtyard in the middle of the day but still sit in the shade. And it's these tiles that they begin one by one to remove... Until they create a hole big enough for the stretcher to be lowered through directly in front of the Lord. Today in this room, there's a young, curious, nine-year-old Captain Obvious who's probably asking the inevitable question, why didn't anyone stop them in the middle of this? And the answer is, Jesus wouldn't let them stop. As the rabbi seated in teaching, he was effectively the master of ceremonies. He was in charge of everything that was going on. So after the ruckus outside had settled down and the men had got up the stairs, and the first beam of sunlight comes through the first tile that's removed from this portico, all eyes went to Jesus. What are you going to do? Should we tell him to stop? Are you going to stop teaching? What's going to happen? And you can imagine the Lord, He knows what's already happening, and He puts His hands up in a gesture of patience. This is going to be an excellent sermon illustration, so everybody just wait. (laughs) This is the power of persistent faith. Look at the first part of verse 20. And seeing their faith, this is Jesus sees the group of men's face what what was it that caused these courageous few to bring an invalid all the way from wherever he came from on a stretcher he's likely ceremonially unclean and they are making themselves unclean to get him there what was it that caused them to do such a thing it was faith What motivated them to not give up when they hit the mass of huddled bodies at the doors and all around the house and to keep looking for another way in to climb the stairs and then one of them mentioned, I think I've got an idea. And it was a little bit crazy. What was it that caused them to do all of that? It was faith. What would create... Such a brazen disregard for someone else's private property, to ignore the gasps and shouts and finger pointings. And if you can think about this for a minute, imagine the slander of the enemy in their own minds. Individually, each one of them hearing him say things like, Your life in this town is over for doing this. Nobody here is gonna buy or sell stuff with you anymore, your family's gonna kick you out. You're done in the synagogue after this. Your wife won't sleep with you for three months if she ever does again. And all this for a sick guy who can't even pull up his own pants. You can imagine thoughts like that going through their mind. They've got people shouting at them, pointing, looking, and they're thinking all of these thoughts. What kept them motivated? Why didn't they yield? It was because of faith. It was persistent faith, active faith, faith that worked because of what it believed in. There's a guy down here I know can heal my friend. I know it. I want to stop right here and I want to make something very clear. A lot has been said about this group of men, their tenacity, their hurry up offense, how we should emulate the greatness of their faith. And Jesus saw the greatness of their faith, and we absolutely should emulate their faith. Go and do likewise, yes and amen. But you can't look at their faith and imitate their faith. Faith of this kind has a perfect object. It has a source. It has a fountain from which it draws. Paul said, faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. You see, faith is pointing towards something. Faith is the conviction of what is not seen. Eugene Peterson said, Faith is not a precarious experience of chance, but is the solid, massive experience of God. This is the first mention of faith in the Gospel of Luke as well. And it is imperative for us to know where their faith came from. These men may have heard the story about Peter's mother-in-law on the sickbed, beset with a fever, and she was healed by Jesus. And the crowds with fevers and various illnesses, all of them healed, stories spreading everywhere by this man, whose name was Jesus. And news had at this point probably reached them about the man who had been full of leprosy from head to toe. And he had been fully healed by Jesus. And Jesus is here teaching, and Luke tells us that the power to heal is present with him. They may not have known that, but they try to come in the main gate to get this man before Jesus, verse 18. But they can't because of the crowd. But Jesus is here, and he can heal, and we're not going to stop until we get this, brother of ours, in front of Jesus. So they lower the man through a torn apart roof opening. And then at the end of verse 19, he's in front of Jesus. Motivation, power, gusto, propellant, jet fuel for faith. What is it? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Their faith is admirable, to say the least, but it is Jesus who pronounced and produced such a faith in them. Christ is the center of a persistent faith, no matter how small or how great. I want to make two brief critiques. Follow my example here. Baptists will often criticize Presbyterians, they criticize them for downplaying the role of faith in their view of covenant theology, particularly with children. You know, children have faith, faith like a child, so we assume that the child already shares the faith, we don't need to question their individual faith in Christ because we're assuming that, et cetera. Et cetera. Now I think if the Presbyterians will hear what the Baptists are saying here, there's a helpful critique, a helpful corrective not to go too far with those children. But... Presbyterians have a helpful critique for the Baptists as well. That modern Baptists, particularly the traditionalist branch, tend to overemphasize an individual's faith to the point that it eclipses the source and fountain of a person's faith, and that is Jesus Christ. You can remember, perhaps, when you were younger, all the praying the soul-searching, the self-examination, looking inside yourself, do I have enough faith? Is it the right kind of faith? Did I really mean it when I prayed the prayer? It's nonsense. Silly indie Fundies. It's not the power of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. Let me say it even more strongly than that. Sola Fide, faith alone cannot save you. But faith alone in Christ alone does every single time. When people share their testimony with me, I'm not overly concerned with how convinced they feel that they believe in Christ. I mean, even the Mormons believe, right? I want to hear them talk about Jesus, this last week my son Amos professed his faith in Christ. He said to his mother He said to his mother, "Mom, I'm a Christian now and I want to be baptized." And she was overjoyed and asked him the story, "How did this happen?" And he said, "I believe in Jesus now." Now we've talked to our children before about the passage in James that says, "Even the demons believe." But in this moment Amos said something really wonderful. He said, Demons believe in God, but they don't believe in Jesus to save. And I do. Amen. Do you know what causes that? It's faith. And it doesn't have to be a big faith either. It doesn't have to be a faith as seemingly as big as this one right here in this text. It can be a faith as small as a mustard seed. That's all it takes. Pastor Charles Leiter once said, Imagine two bridges crossing a great chasm. One is very weak and untrustworthy, and the other is very strong. A man may have a very strong faith in the weak bridge and confidently step onto it. But his strong faith will not keep him from plunging to his death. On the other hand, a man may have a very weak faith in the strong bridge And only barely managed with fear and trembling to venture forth upon it. And that bridge will hold him securely regardless of his weak faith. All that is necessary is for him to have enough faith to get on the bridge. Lost person, I know I've already spoken to you once. Quit waiting on a feeling that you're ready to come to Christ. You've heard who Jesus is. Luke has given proof after proof after proof of his power and his authority to save in this gospel. Do you believe it? Then get out on the bridge and be baptized into his name. It doesn't matter how strong or weak your faith is. The bridge of Christ is strong enough to hold you. It is strong enough. As we continue with our text, let's think about the pronouncement of Jesus and the protest of the Pharisees after this persistent faith gets the sick man to Jesus, our Lord makes a startling pronouncement. And seeing their faith, He said, speaking to the paralytic, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins. You know, those violations of God's law. Each of which He rightfully hates. Those you've committed willingly, or the good deeds that you've willingly omitted, sins for which he created a place of eternal torment to punish all those who were found before his judgment bar, still clinging to those sins. Jesus said, those sins? Yeah, I forgive you of those. Now, don't forget who's in attendance at this moment. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are standing right there. They're probably not in a good mood at this point. Still frustrated that Jesus didn't put a stop to all the personal property damage that everyone just had to sit and watch. I'm sure they found some law or rule of the tradition of the elders that why didn't you stop them for doing such a thing? Jesus could have taken Pastor Kevin DeYoung's advice and chosen his words more carefully. Why not not stop and skip the controversial part about forgiving sins and just say, rise, take up your bed, and go home. I mean, after all, that's what this group of men went before Jesus with this paralyzed man for, isn't it? In response to the faith of the men who have laid this corpse on a cot in front of Jesus for physical healing, Jesus decided it was time to reveal the ultimate extent of his authority. And by the way, we should be careful not to take more from this account than is elsewhere clearly taught in the scriptures. Those group of guys had faith, Jesus saw their faith, and then this guy gets his sins forgiven. That might confuse some of you. That means that you can get saved by somebody else's faith? Wrong. It doesn't work that way. Paul said that, The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, not through their friends who believe. Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus that God so loved the world, he sent his only son, so whoever's buddies believe in him, that man won't perish but will have eternal life. It's not what the Bible teaches. This living parable, this thing that's playing out in real time before this crowd, isn't meant to portray a total biblical soteriology. It doesn't teach us didactically what we know about saving faith. I think what Luke wants us to see is an order of operations here. Let me explain. In ancient times, both Jews and otherwise, sicknesses were thought to be the judgment of God or the gods on someone's sins. You may remember the man that was born blind in John chapter 9. And how the Pharisees asked Jesus the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was just a universal understanding at that point. If you're sick, you must have done something bad. And in Asia and Africa today, this is still pretty much universally accepted. You must have done something bad if you're sick. Jesus looses the man from his sin before then delivering him from the disease. That's the order of operations, I think, that Luke wants us to see here. Now, I'll pause briefly here to say that there is a ditch on both sides of this road. Sickness can be related to sin, even in the New Covenant, but not never and not always. It, can, it can't be always related to sin because in John 9, Jesus said, it was neither the blind man's sins nor the sins of his parents that caused his blindness, but that the glory of God might be revealed in his life. But it can't be never either. Our commitment to a naturalistic view of the cosmos leads us to most often assume that sicknesses have nothing to do with sins, but Paul told the church in Corinth that they were dealing with disease and even death because of their breaking of the unity of the Lord's table. Those were people in the New Covenant. When James encourages the churches, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, for what reason? So that you may be healed. Sins, sicknesses. Now, I want to keep this really practical, and we'll move on. Every time this question pops into my mind, the question, have I sinned to bring about a discipline of an illness kind in my life? I stop and I pray the prayer of David at the end of Psalm 139, which says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If the Lord brings a sin to my mind, I confess it to Him, and then I go about my day trusting the Lord to answer my prayer for healing of sickness. Don't spend too much time on this. We can get a little... I've talked about navel-gazing earlier We can get a little too introspective with this. It can be, but it's not never and it's not always. Pray and ask the Lord to reveal and then move on trusting the Lord to answer your prayer for healing. Now the Pharisees don't care about any of this. They don't really care at this point whether or not this man had sinned or not to bring about his paralysis. Their protest has everything to do with how any man, any man could utter such a thing as, friend, your sins are forgiven. It sounds even more shocking if you'll say it in Hebrew. Adam, your sins are forgiven. Some good biblical theology there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now I want you to consider just a minute their train of thought. Their reasoning, Jesus reads their reasoning. We'll get to that part in just a minute. But in their mind, they say, God is the only one that can forgive sins. This man just offered forgiveness of sins, therefore, blasphemy. Now, what's wrong with that logic? Really, what's wrong with the logic? It seems like sound reasoning to me. The problem is they've, at this point, ignored all of the evidence that God has given through Jesus Christ. The unrighteous, devil-worshipping Jewish elites, having at this point seen nothing from Jesus, but they have heard much about Him, refused to believe. C.S. Lewis once spoke of a challenge, the challenge that's presented when someone has to accept that Christ is God, and today it's known as the great trilemma. This is Lewis I'm quoting from. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now that's a classic apologetic, and it is very useful for dealing with publicly indoctrinated blue-haired feminists and their pet boys on leashes. But based on what Jesus has said the Pharisees made their choice. This guy is a liar. He's a phony. He's a charlatan. He's a fraud. They probably thought he was a bit on the lunatic side too. But Luke didn't just tell us that Jesus used words. In his infinite wisdom, and with undeserved patience, dealing with fallen men who just have to see it to believe Jesus has given proof. Men of Israel, Peter said at Pentecost, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. How did God attest? to the work of Christ. It was through miracles. It was through wonders. It was through signs. And that's just what Jesus is about to give them. They've heard, but now he's going to make sure that they see it right in front of them. And we'll get to that proof in just a minute, the evidence that demands a verdict, if you will. But I want to speak again to those who are still living in unbelief. This is now the third time lost person that I've called out to you. If you've been at Christ the King for any length of time, you know that Sunday mornings are primarily for the sheep of Christ, nourishing food from God's Word, the Word that exposes where the sheep are in sin, binds them up in the grace of Christ to go out and minister His light to a world that is still hiding in what's left of the darkness. But Luke, lost person, has said some really strong things at this point, He said, my Savior came in a miraculous birth. My Savior taught like no other man ever would. My Savior healed the sick and casted out demons and confounded the teachers of the law. My Savior had masses of eyewitnesses for every one of His miracles. And Luke says here, and my Savior forgives sins. Now, you think about the Pharisees. Sands their rejection. They did have the right conclusion. Only God can do that. Lost one, can you still sit there and not call him my Lord and my God? The only way you can leave here today and not call him that is by ignoring what this book has said. Peter Whimsey, a character in one of Dorothy Sayers' novels, whose body once famously said, There is nothing that you cannot prove if your outlook is sufficiently limited. Lost person, the only way to walk out of here without bowing the knee to King Jesus today is to ignore the truth revealed right in front of you in the Word of God. Today, you are actually hearing His voice. I can say that with all confidence because you are sitting here listening to the words of Christ Himself. Since you are hearing his word right now, again from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, we sang a whole song about it this morning. Do not harden your hearts. You might answer, well, it was easy for them in their day. Jesus was right there in front of their eyes, he did all of those great things. They could sit there and watch it. And that same Jesus would later admonish Thomas for having to have to see. He said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Let me make something absolutely clear, lost person in here today. All you need to know about God and sin and Christ to be saved is contained in this book. Everything. And this book tells me that there are only two people in the world today. Those who put their faith in Christ and those who don't. The Bible calls them the sheep and the goats. Those who call Jesus Lord and those who don't. And don't misunderstand that last statement. Jesus isn't asking you to make Him your Lord. He already is your Lord. Today, He is in fact Lord of all. The Bible tells us that. What I and every covenant member at this church are asking is that having seen your sin debt revealed, And knowing that it is unpaid, you bring it to King Jesus. You get out on the bridge. Otherwise, you will carry it to hell. But this man who has power and authority also can pardon you from all of your sins forever. So do not refuse him who is speaking to you right now. Lastly, let's look at the proof of his authority in verses 22. to To silence the protests of the Pharisees and the lawyers, Jesus first reads the collective mind. Jesus, knowing their reasoning, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? This flex of omnipotence is further proof of the deity of our Lord. But he then calls out to them with his own logically unavoidable question. Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? Now, when I was a young believer, I stumbled over this verse. I admit to you, it puzzled me. And maybe it was because I was a product of an inglorious indoctrination system that murders basic deductive reasoning skills, but... The saying is actually quite simple if you consider these two things. And and just think, which of the two is easier to say, as Jesus says? Or maybe you can think about it this way. Which of the two is easier to get away with saying? I forgive your sins, which is a visibly unverifiable statement. Or you who are paralyzed throughout the body and cannot move get up and carry your things out of here and go home. After which, everyone looks at the lame man to see if he leaps. Now, the liar and the lunatic can get away with saying the first. Only the Lord can get away with saying the second. And this is exactly what Jesus does as a grace to the hard-hearted in the midst that day. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and picking up your stretcher, go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Jesus' words have the authority to lift the disease. Therefore, logically, he must have the authority to forgive sins. Calvin said... By these words, Christ declares that he is not only minister and witness of grace, but he is likewise the author of grace. We can't tell from the general response how much the crowd comprehended. Luke only records that an astonishment, almost a fear, seized them all, and they began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. But what was their conclusion? What result did they come to because of this? And we also don't get a response from the elites that were present there that day. Jesus had his biggest mic drop of Luke so far, and the narrative just moves on. Next we go to Levi. That's next week. But there is one other thing here that Jesus says that we need to spend a little bit of time on. It is the most shocking as of yet in Luke. And he's going to say it quite a bit more in this gospel, about 25 times. He actually says it over 80 times throughout the four gospels. And it's hard to believe that the Pharisees and the lawyers would have missed it. In giving a proof of his authority to forgive sins, refuting the reasoning that he cannot be God because he's merely a man, and right before proving through the miracle that he is in fact God and can forgive sins, he says this, So that you may know that Hoquias tuanthropu Anthropou has authority on earth to forgive sins, the Son of Man. Now, to some of you, that might not strike you as very inflammatory. I mean, he is the son of man, right? I mean, he's a man. Wouldn't it be more offensive if he said, so that you know that the son of God can forgive sins? Actually, no, it wouldn't have been more offensive. The phrase son of God is often used to describe someone who's been faithful to the covenant God made with his Old Testament people. That wouldn't have turned any heads. What Jesus instead said was something more like, but so that you may know that I am the most significant figure in all of Old Testament prophecy. That's actually what he kind of said. After Daniel prophesied the rise and fall of many nations and kingdoms, he saw this from Daniel chapter 7, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him and to him, this a son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, you probably noticed Daniel saw a son of man. This figure was veiled in mystery to the Jews. They knew that it was a son of Adam in Hebrew. And this is the new Adam figure that's coming Adam appearing before the throne of God, the new king over all the earth. Now, Daniel only uses this term two times, but 50 years prior to his writing, Ezekiel coins the phrase. It's the first time in the Old Testament that it's used, and he uses it 91 times. And Ezekiel's son of man is more like a priest figure in comparison to Daniel's king figure. So Jesus reveals here that he is that son of man. He is the king priest who ascends to the Ancient of Days and receives dominion over the whole earth. Perhaps I should say that a little differently. He ascended to the Ancient of Days and he has received dominion over the whole earth. Jesus claims to be the new Adam who over the course of human history is going to subdue and possess the earth. He says, I have the authority to forgive sins and heal like I do because God has given me dominion, glory, and a kingdom in order that all nations, peoples, and men of every tongue serve me. Now you know the teachers of the law left still fuming about that forgiveness of sin stuff, but at some point probably said, did you hear what he said about being the son of man? Church, let me ask you pointedly, do you agree with all the Bible says about Jesus Christ? Let me ask it a different way. How does Jesus being the son of man change the way that we think about our present and the future? This time of year, we love to look back and see the little baby in a manger. We celebrate the advent of Christ, and rightly so. But right now, the one who was in a manger now has dominion, glory, and an ever-expanding kingdom. And one day, all people's nations and men of every tongue will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting one, which will not be taken away. His kingdom, one which will not be destroyed. Let me ask you, church, do you believe that? Jesus was given dominion and glory in a kingdom. He was given, past tense, for forever, so Joe Biden or George Soros or the Deep State or the WEF or the Trilateral Council or any principality or power in the spiritual realm will never be able to take it away from him. One day, all men and tongues of men and every nation will serve him. That means this physical world, one day, future tense. And not after Satan beats him in the cosmic chess game and Jesus gets ticked and flips over the table and stabs the devil in the neck. Sounds kind of cool, but that's not what the Bible tells us. All men and nations means all. On earth as in heaven. Paul didn't encourage the Corinthian church that Jesus was gonna stay in heaven until it got too hot to handle, and then he would come back and put all of his enemies under his feet. The Bible actually teaches us that Jesus reigns in heaven over his kingdom of priests on earth, and that he continues reigning until his enemies are put underneath his feet. 1 Corinthians 15.25. Jesus didn't say his kingdom would shrink, but actually grow. He said it's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Luke 13.21. Daniel didn't say that the stone that struck the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome and broke them into pieces would roll into a cave and hide until Jesus got back. But instead it became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Satan is currently right now robbing many members of this body, this fellowship of Advent joy, of your expectation, of your hope. He has you bogged down with the new cycle of seemingly endless, endless sadness, injustice, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness going on everywhere in the world. You've got an outlook at this point that's sufficiently limited. And you can believe enough of what the Bible says because I've narrowed my scope. But you don't believe that there's any way this world can turn around at this point. Jesus did everything that he could at the cross and with the empty tomb. And it's going to get bad enough eventually and he'll come back and get us out of this. Are you willing to believe all the Bible says about Jesus Christ? Earlier I quoted John 3.16, very familiar passage. You know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you'd like some Advent hope, I encourage you to read the next verse. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That's the end. Do you know what happens in the end? The world gets saved. As the kingdom of Jesus grows, the darkness retreats, and all of his enemies are made his footstool. The first Adam was told to take dominion. He failed. The last Adam has taken dominion already. And he has told us to go with the gospel of this kingdom and tell the world that he has already won. Until the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of him, Just like the waters cover the sea. Thus it is written, and thus shall it be done. Do you believe it, church? I'll close this morning with something that's going to be familiar to many of you if you've been going through the Advent literature. And in fact, Dustin read from Psalm 72 this morning Forever shall his name endure, last like the sun it shall. Mankind shall be blessed in him, and blessed all nations shall him call. Now blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel. For He alone does wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be His glorious name through all eternity. The whole earth let His glory fill. Amen. So let it be. Father, we pray that this day would come soon. But if not, Lord, would You instill in us the hope that keeps us faithful to obedience to Your Word even in that spanking that has to happen with that child, or those math problems, or the cooking, or the business endeavor, where we want to cheat a little bit, get around things, or as we go downtown this coming week to sing your praises, or as we gather the end of next week to sing your praises here in this room and recount the glorious story of the prophecies of Jesus, Lord, in our days, may you find us faithful. And would you propel then with the hope that we have, our children and our children's children, with gospel hope out into this dark world to, in such a way, that their lives for generations and generations and generations demand everyone answer. And I pray that at the end... This whole community and this whole country and our whole world, we know will be the case, will bow the knee to King Jesus. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.